Let's pray before we start. Lord, we want to um, just pray that our hearts and our minds are, are calm and are open to what you have for us this morning in your word. And we pray for the book of Galatians as we get into it, Lord, just the simplicity of the message that we're going to be taking a look at this morning. Not to confuse this message or to water it down or add anything to it, but we just take it simply as the scripture teaches. So we thank you for this time this morning to get together for this. We want to lift up all the prayer requests we have this morning. We want to lift up Pastor Lana to you on his sabbatical, Lord, that his heart and his mind are relaxing and they are at ease and that he is open in listening to exactly what you have for him. So Lord, we thank you for all of these things in your son's name. Amen. So we are in Galatians this morning, the third epistle that we're covering, doing a synthetic study of each of the 13 Pauline epistles, going through each one of them. If you want to open up your bulletins, there's an outline in the top left-hand corner of the book of Galatians. It's, it's pretty much a, bit, a summary or an overview of the book. We have the introduction for the first 10 verses, and then we're going to get into the departure from apostolic teaching. Then number two, the personal defense of Paul. Paul gives a defense against the claims of the Judaizers. And then number three, theological affirmation of salvation by faith. Justification is by faith alone, apart from works. That's going to be the heart of the message this morning. Four, practical application for Christian living. It's walking in the flesh, or what you see, the walking in the spirit or walking in the flesh. And the conclusion, the last seven verses of Galatians. So that's a basic outline of the book. Before we get started, just some background on the epistle, why Paul is writing it, when he wrote it, what's the occasion. Paul was writing to the churches located in the Roman province of Galatia. He founded it on his first missionary journey. So the date of Galatians is about 49 AD. So it's probably the first or one of the first New Testament books, possibly one of Paul's first letters. There's there's a debate if you get into the um, background between scholars if it was written in 49 AD or 56 AD, but depending on if it was written to the southern portion or the northern portion, not going to get into that this morning. But the purpose of the book, it's to refute the claims of the Judaizers. So we have to understand that Christianity has a very Jewish foundation to it. Everybody who founded the Christian faith, including Jesus himself, was Jewish. And what we're seeing is we're going from last week, we talked about the old covenant under Moses, now to the new covenant under Jesus in his blood. Well, for 1,500 years, the Jews were under the old covenant. For 1,500 years, it had been ingrained into their minds to follow the Mosaic law. Now, just 15, 20 years prior, Jesus came on the scene, died and rose again. Now we're under the new covenant. Well, you have 1,500 years of laws, regulations, and traditions, and all of a sudden this new covenant comes in. So what we're starting to see here are there Jewish people who still think that salvation is under, or there's partly under, the Mosaic law. There's that confusion, and you can understand why. So this is what Paul's doing, but in a sense what's happening is these Jewish people are starting to say that Paul is not an authentic apostle. Or what Paul is saying is not necessarily from God. There's more that has to be added to the salvation of souls. So we're seeing this. Paul in this letter is not dealing so much with behavior as he is with belief. Belief in doctrine is the foundation upon which our behavior rests. So if I was going to ask you, what is more important? Is it belief or is it behavior? 
Is it more important what we believe in or is it more important what we do? So let's take a look at this real quick. I want to lay this foundation. Keep your thumb in Galatians. If you can go to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to see this point illustrated. We're going to see belief versus behavior. Which one is it? Which one bases itself? Does it matter so much what we believe as long as our hearts are good, our intentions are good? Does doctrine really matter? And today, in our culture, as it's becoming very pluralistic, as it's becoming very tolerant of everything, what we're seeing today is just one's behavior is all that matters. That when we get to heaven, God's going to look at your heart and he's going to say, wow, you had great intentions. Your doctrine was way off on who I was, but you had great intentions. That's what people think when they appear before the Lord. But in Matthew 7, look at verse 21. Jesus is going to lay this out very clearly. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So what do we see in verse 22? Prophecy. Casting out demons, performing many miracles are all behavior. Those are all things people do. Did that get him in? No. What does he say in verse 23? I never knew you. Right relationship with God comes with a proper and correct understanding of who he is. Doctrine. That's the fundamental basis. Now, it doesn't end there. That's just the beginning of our Christian walk. Afterwards, the behavior comes out. But the foundation of our Christian faith and why we do what we do rests upon the doctrines of Scripture. So what we're going to see this morning the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's a very important doctrine. It is a very basic doctrine. It's a very easy doctrine to understand, but it is so, this is under attack. It, I mean, so many people try to pollute this doctrine or add things to it. And this is what we're seeing from the Judaizers. As we went from the old covenant to the new covenant, it was hard for some people to break off completely from the law. Tradition, you know, ritual, all of those types of things. They were trying to add that into the gospel. So going now back to Galatians Chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 6, and Paul's going to address this point. He's going to address the point of the perversion of the gospel. Now in verse 6 he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Now the question is, what is this other gospel? And what he's highlighting here and what he's pointing out is circumcision under the Mosaic law being necessary for salvation. Yes, Jesus died. Yes, Jesus was buried. Yes, Jesus rose again. Those are all necessary for salvation. But what the Jews were saying or what these Judaizers were saying is you have to add circumcision too. And what this is doing is justification by faith alone. It's adding a work to it works-based salvation. It's inherent in our human nature to do this. We think we have to please God or we think we have to do more than what's expected to make God happy. And this is what the Jews were doing. And what Paul is saying here is this now has become a different gospel. Verse 7, which is really not another. Only there are some of you who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So what we're seeing here is details matter. They do matter. 
keeping the Bible sound and pure, letting it speak for itself and adding nothing to it or not taking anything out is very fundamental. And for the past 2,000 years of Christian history, you can look at so many heresies that have come and gone that have added one little thing here or one little thing there. And it may seem harmless. It may seem like it's no big deal. But what Paul is saying here is that this has now become another gospel. It is not the gospel which Paul has preached. Verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you. He is to be accursed. So look at verse 8. Who is we referring to? The apostles. The apostles were the people that Jesus gave the authority to write scripture. And what Paul is saying here, if any other apostle comes along and teaches something different than what has already been preached and taught in Christ, let him be accursed. Notice also says an angel from heaven. So an angelic being comes down, bright lights, brings to you another gospel. That's not from God. That's how you discern the difference. Contrary to what we have preached. So this is 49, 49 AD, probably Paul's first letter. The foundation of what he has, oh, it's already been set in stone. There is nothing new that can be added to the gospel. And this is what Paul's saying. And he's saying, let him be accursed, which is also known as, in Greek, anathema. So you see that going on here. Verse 9. As we have said before, so I now say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Now, verse 10 is important, and this is going to be kind of the, the, the foundation of the study this morning. It says, For I am, not, am I now seeking favor of men or God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, what is Paul saying here? He's making it perfectly clear what? That details to the gospel matter, and people are going to be offended. People are going to be offended when we say Jesus is the only way to the Father, that the Bible contains God's revelation. So if the Bible's true, guess what that means for all other faith-based books and religions? The Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, the Book of Mormon, all of those other religions. If the Bible's true, then those other ones cannot be true, otherwise there's a contradiction. This can get very heated. And what we want to do when we preach this message is not fire and brimstone and start pounding the pulpit, but speaking it in love and allowing the Holy Spirit to work on an individual's heart. So when we talk about subjects about God, Jesus, salvation, works, compared to religions, cults, and we bring this to them, and you say, Jesus only, by grace, through faith, in Christ only, that's going to get some people upset. And this is what Paul's saying here in verse 10. Do I seek to please men? Or do I seek to represent God accurately? So it's interesting if somebody was to describe your children or your parents to you or your wife or your husband to you and they get the eye color wrong, are you going to correct them? Or they say they work here, no, no, they work there. Or they, they, they misrepresent them in some way, you're going to be quick to say, no, 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 that's not true, this is true. So we have a sensitivity towards our kids, our husbands, our wives that we're able to represent them real quick. So why is it then with the gospel, do we allow certain things? Ah, just let that slide. You know what I'm saying? We allow the gospel to be compromised. But for instance, if we drive up to a pharmacy and we ask them for specific medication and they give us something completely different, we go back, we're angry because if we take those pills, that could get us physically sick. Same thing with the gospel. If we believe a different gospel, what's on the line is an individual's salvation. So we have no problem doing things, standing up for the truth, Especially on Sunday afternoons, if you're watching a Packer game and the ref misses a call, the whole state of Wisconsin is an outrage, right? Because that one ref missed that one call, right? We hold them to a thin line of accountability 
why are we allowing the gospel to be perverted? Or why are we allowing other things to come in to distort the gospel? So that passion that we have for those Packer games or how serious we are when we take medication, we should be that serious toward defining doctrines correctly. So this is why we're going to take a little bit of time here this morning to get into the differences in doctrine. Now, there's two classifications of doctrine. There's primary and secondary. Primary doctrines are essential for salvation that cannot be compromised. We have to hold to the fundamentals of the faith. And what are some of these? Like what we're talking about this morning. Salvation by grace through faith alone, not by works. The Trinity, why is that important? Because that's the identity of who God is. We don't have a proper understanding of who God is. How can we have that relationship with him? The deity of Christ, turning Jesus into just a mere human being or an exalted lesser demigod in a sense, but not the true God because his atoning blood is what's at stake if you take that away. Jesus having two complete natures, 100% man, 100% God, joined but not mixed. Now you're going to get into a lot of heresies if you study early church history. Ebionism, Arianism, um, what else do I have written down here? Gnosticism, Eutychianism, which all distort that. They'll say that his humanity and his deity mixed. Well, if that's true, then God can change. Then the scriptures aren't true because God's immutable. He cannot change. Some will say that he was 100% man, but not God. Others will say he was 100% a spirit, but not man. In the first 100, 200 years of Christian church history, you can read all of these different heresies. The Council of Nicaea was against Arianism, saying that Jesus was created at a specific point of time. He was God's first creation which takes away his eternality. He's no longer eternal, so he can't be God. So doctrine and details are very important, specifically when we're looking at this. If we're looking at the virgin birth, both natures, God, man, are involved if you deny that. Bodily resurrection, inspiration of Scripture. If we take away the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, now man becomes the deciding factor on what the Bible says and what it doesn't say. It takes away from the authority of God. So that's why these doctrines that I just mentioned are so important to understand and so important to teach and so important to defend. Because if we compromise here, the whole foundation of the Christian church and the Christian community is, is compromised. Going from primary doctrines, we go to secondary doctrines. Now what are secondary doctrines? They're important teachings but they're not essential to salvation, meaning if you hold to one or the other, the gospel is not compromised. For instance, there's a big debate today on sign gifts, tongues, knowledge, and prophecy. Are they for today or not? Some churches say yes, other churches say no. What we'll get into in the book of Thessalonians is the second coming of Christ in the rapture of the church. Does Jesus come before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation? Some people say we're well, in each category. Again, the salvation of an individual is not based upon that. The millennial reign of Christ, are we in it now? Is he ruling in our hearts? Or is it a future event that we're waiting for him to literally come back? We have these debates. Now, these are worth serious study. These are worth, you know, in-house Christian discussion, but they're not essential to the Christian faith as far as salvation is concerned. They're essential to the Christian faith, but as far as the gospel being compromised, we don't see that in secondary doctrine. So those are the difference. What Paul's hammering out this morning, by grace, through faith, that cannot be compromised. So let's get into what Paul's saying here a little bit more. Justification by faith alone. Go to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 4 and 5 where Paul describes the motives of the Judaizers. And in verse 4, it says, But it was become, 
of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Jesus Christ in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain in you. So what we're seeing here is, look at verse 4. What is Paul referring to when he speaks of liberty? And what is Paul referring to here when he speaks of bondage? The Judaizers are trying to bring them back into bondage. Bondage being legalism. That we come to church because we think we have to appease God. That we do what we do because we think we have to earn our salvation or put forth something that God's going to be pleased about so he accepts us into heaven which is what Paul is completely speaking against. When Paul speaks of liberty, he's speaking of our salvation coming by faith alone in the finished work of Christ, and it ends right there. If we have that saving faith in Christ, we are saved. But what Paul is saying here is these Judaizers are coming in and they're saying, no, 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 not just that, but now circumcision. And what that's doing is it's taking that, that freedom that we have in Christ, knowing that Jesus paid it all, and we're shifting it over now to man's ability to keep it in a legalistic setting. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since the works of the law, by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified. Very basic, very simple. But like when you're driving down the road and you got your hand on the wheel and you're perfectly in the lane, you let that steering wheel go for two seconds, you're either going into the other lane or you're going into the ditch. And that seems to be human tendency towards this doctrine. We understand it, it makes sense, but the second we put the Bible down and go into practical living, we tend to think that still there's something else man has to do for this. It's in our nature. It's ingrained in us. What is justification? Greek words, um, dekaio, it means to be found right before God, to be free from all charges. So you're standing before the judge, and you got a laundry list of things you're being accused of, and the judge says, paid in full. Boom. Draws a line down. You may be set free. That's pretty much the concept it is. We stand before God. He sees us as righteous. He sees us as sinless. Why? Not because we physically are. Not because we've earned it by any means. But because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we now positionally stand where Jesus did. What Jesus did is where we stand. Not in our own works. Jesus paid it all. We stand there. It's a positional thing. So we're free from all charges apart from the works of the law. The Mosaic Covenant, specifically with this context in Galatians, in circumcision. So how is a person justified by the works of the law? By keeping all of it. So if you want to subject yourself back to the Mosaic Law, start with Exodus chapter 20, read all the way through Deuteronomy, and then start to follow every single one of those 613 commandments. If you break one, you failed. That's it. That's bondage. That's legalism. That's what Jesus has set us free from. Look at, uh, go to Galatians 5 quick. Just turn over to chapter 5, verse 3. And Paul illustrates the same point I just made. He says, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole of the law. So it's not part in, part out. It's not just observing what we want to observe. 
in the context that Paul's speaking of, specifically with these Judaizers. If you want to be saved under the Mosaic Law, you have to follow the whole thing, not just circumcision. So if you bring in a little bit to the gospel of grace by faith alone, just a little bit, then you're completely obligated to follow all of it. You're back under bondage. You're outside of the liberty of Christ. That's what Paul's speaking of. Interesting, Jesus says, I'll read this to you in John 6, 28 and 29. Therefore he said to them, they, were, they asked Jesus, uh, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So this question was even asked to Jesus. What do we got to do? Jesus, tell me, what do I got to do? Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Simple. Jesus taught the same message, faith. Simply accept what Jesus has done for us on the cross outside of any work that we can do to try to turn around and please him. That's the basis of the gospel. This is what Paul is teaching here in the book of Galatians. Faith in Christ, the content of our faith, placing our faith into Jesus, what Jesus has done on the cross. Now in Galatians chapter 3, if you want to turn back to chapter 3, verse 13, Paul concludes this by saying, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed everyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus has paid all of our penalty. He has borne all of our sin. What is needed for salvation now is a saving faith in the completed finished work and what he's done, adding nothing to that. So as a result of justification, of a believer's justification, very, very powerful verse in chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in Christ, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Notice how personal Paul is making this. This is a personal message to each single individual in this room. That Jesus has died for you. He has, um, we took a look at it last week, the ministry of reconciliation where the sin has been paid for. Now the saving faith to actuate that is what's needed. And this is what Paul is saying here. So adding to the doctrine of justification by faith, look at verse 21 of chapter 2. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So if righteousness comes by any work or anything that we can do to try to please God, then what we are saying is, Jesus, yeah, I, I appreciate what you did for me on the cross. That was excellent. You know, thank you. But I'm going to add something to that. That's how pretty much as blasphemous as it gets, if you think about it. Trying to add any work to what Jesus has already done for us. Think about that. We're putting ourselves, no, Jesus, I'm going to add something to what you did. Well, <laughs> Good luck with that. I wouldn't want to stand before him and, you know, and, and say that to him, but that's pretty much what we're saying. And the gospel's compromised at that point because it's not all about Jesus. It's about us as well, adding to that. So shifting gears here now, practical application of justification by faith. Go to um, Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 1. Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Which is why, I don't know, I wasn't here at the time, but Charlie, you may be able to help me with this. Why we call this Freedom Fellowship is Freedom in Christ. Is that, or was it because we were in freedom? I died. No, it's freedom in is it Freedom in Christ? Okay, so that's pretty much why we, it was both? So yeah, so the basic meaning of the reason why we call it Freedom Fellowship is this. In Galatians 5.1, 
freedom in Christ as opposed to the yoke of slavery. How many people growing up heard the word church and cringed, right? Oh, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> I don't think that way because obviously Freedom Fellowship, we emphasize the freedom in Christ. So it's, it's not like it's ritualistic. It's not like, oh, I have to go and stare at the clock for an hour and a half with all these fancy clothes on and sweat in the heat and freeze in the cold and pretend that we're happy. You know, it's not that at all. We're real here. We have freedom in Christ. What is Paul referring to, though, as the yoke of slavery? He's referring to keeping all 613 commandments of the Mosaic law. What he's referring to, and in Galatians 1.14, Paul makes reference to ancestral traditions. So we have the Mosaic law. But what the Jews started to do after the exile out of Babylon in 539 B.C. is they started to add rules and regulations onto the Mosaic Law. And what they like to call it is they're building a fence around it. So here's the law. We're going to build a fence around the law. So we, in case we mess up, we don't eat. So what I'm trying to say is they added and added and added and added so they wouldn't break the law. They made it so legalistic and so strenuous because they didn't want to break the commandments. So what was happening is they were leaving a relationship with the Lord and they were going under legalism again or going under the yoke of bondage. For instance, I'll read this to you in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now it happened that Jesus was passing through some grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were picking the heads off the grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. Now some of the Pharisees said to them, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So what we're seeing here now is you have the Mosaic Law, which there was nothing against this. The Mosaic Law on the Sabbath day allowed for acts of charity and allowed for acts of necessity, such as eating. But what the Jews had done is they had added so many laws and regulations to the Sabbath that they took it from what God had intended and they turned it into something that was ultra-legalistic. What was their belief? Well, when the disciples picked the wheat off the stalk, they were guilty according to Mishnaic or Pharisaic law. When they picked it off the stalk, they were guilty of reaping on the Sabbath day. When they rubbed the wheat in their hands to separate the wheat from the chaff, they were guilty of threshing on the Sabbath day. When they blew in their hands to blow the chaff away, they were guilty of winnowing on the Sabbath day. And when they swallowed the wheat, they were guilty of storing on the Sabbath day. So you see how legalistic the Jews got, they totally missed the point. They think they were going to appease God because of all these rules that they were following. You know, God, here's your law, but I'm going to add 1,500 more regulations to your law to really wow you, to really show that. And they were, they were missing the point. Not only this, but walking on the grass on the Sabbath day. It was okay, right? They allowed it, but one stalk of wheat could end up on the grass. If you stepped on that wheat, you were guilty of reaping on the Sabbath day. You were guilty of squeezing, threshing on the Sabbath day. The hem of your garment could hit the wheat and it could blow away. You were guilty of winnowing on the Sabbath day. And a bird might come by, fly down and eat that grain of wheat. Now you're guilty of storing on the Sabbath day. So you know what? Don't walk on the grass because there could be a little stalk of wheat that you might accidentally step on and then you're guilty of all of these things. So they wouldn't walk on the grass. That's how legalistic they became. That's how they think pleasing God worked, and it doesn't work that way. And this is what Paul's hammering home. Also in Galatians, we see he makes references, we're not going to go over it this morning, but to Abraham. 
you know, Abraham was justified by faith. So even in the Old Testament, even before the law was written, Abraham came about 500 years before Moses. Paul is hammering home that all the way through the Bible, Old and New Testament both, salvation is by grace through faith alone. The content of the message changed. The Old Covenant had a different content. The Messiah came. Now we're under the New Covenant. We believe in his finished work. But it had always been the same, by grace, through faith, not by works. So freedom in Christ. Since Jesus has fulfilled the law and set us free from it, why would we ever want to turn around and go back and put ourselves underneath it? And this is what he's talking about, the yoke of bondage. We have freedom in Christ. Not that we have this license to sin now, that every sin has been forgiven. Here we go, we live how we want. No, we turn around and we live a life that is of gratitude and that is of honor and it is of love and respect to the Lord for what he has done. It's not a license to sin. Romans 6, 1 through 2 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? And that's what Paul's making home. He's making this point. Now, um, go to Galatians um, chapter 6. I'm going to read 16 through 18. It says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone... As slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or in obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that through you who were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness is freedom in Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. Slaves to sin is a life of habitual sin and bondage to it. Um, I don't know if anybody in here has ever heard of the music group Korn. They were pretty big in the late 90s. Um, the singer, uh, I'm sorry, the guitar player, uh, Brian Welch, was addicted to meth to the point where he said it controlled everything he did. Um, he's got tattoos all over his entire body. He was in complete bondage, yet this music group was making millions and millions and millions of dollars. His home life was falling apart. His relationship with his daughter was falling apart. He said his daughter would start singing lyrics to some of their songs, which were horrible, and he was just started to get convicted. Well, he ended up becoming a Christian, becoming a believer, and his testimony is on YouTube. So he ended up quitting the band, and he wrote a book, an autobiography, um, on his struggles with drugs and now his freedom in Christ, having been delivered from that drug and rock and roll lifestyle and all of that bondage that he was in, he has now been delivered. And he's been, um, he's been talking all over. This was quite a while ago now. And I heard after he was clean and everything was good that he went back to the band. And I heard that. I'm like, bummer, you know. So I kind of quit following it until last night when I just wanted to look him up to use this as an example this morning. I find out that the bass player now got saved from corn <laughs> going back. And here I am, like, Brian Welch, why did you go back to corn? Well, right now I see why. <laughs> you know, the bass player, same thing. And he gave his testimony. I watched it on YouTube about how he, you know, he used to be so degrading to women and so mean to women because he was hurt one time in his life. And now Christ has set him free. And all of that stuff is in the past. And he's just living a life for God now. And he thinks through corn and through these kids now he can start witnessing and getting the message out to them of the bondage that they were in through their success. So the guitar player and the bassist both got saved. This is what we're seeing here. When I see slave of sin, I think of that. I think of if you just look at all of the icons that everybody idolizes, like Jimi Hendrix or 
Who's the guy from the doors? John a blank. Morrison. All these guys that are just hailed as great, they struggled. You read their lives. They were addicted to drugs. They were in bondage to drugs. There was nothing they could do. They overdosed. They died. But we somehow in this culture think that that is something to live to or that's a standard we set ourselves to. And you see God working even in the music industry in the hard rock groups such as Korn with the bass player and the guitar player that they're set free from that bondage that Christ is real and the reality of what we're talking about can be seen in the transformed lives of some individuals. So the rules and the regulations of legalism, it's hard to, um, just in closing, it's hard to teach Galatians without going back to the Protestant Reformation. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther. Why is Galatians tied into the Reformation? If we study church history and if you study the Reformation period, what was the Protestant Reformation about? You know, we see Protestant. We're Protestant here. What does that mean? You know, I think the root word of it is to protest. Well, what are we protesting? So, not to, I'm not throwing stones. I'm just going to lay out what it was. But what the Protestant Reformation was, was it was breaking away from the Catholic Church on certain specific doctrines that they were teaching. What were they teaching? Well, as Martin Luther loved the book of Galatians, salvation was by faith alone. So what do we see then in the Roman Catholic Church? Well, we see salvation comes by a different way. We say through infant baptism, a baby receives sanctified grace. And through that sanctified grace, they stand in good position with God. And through grace, you gain the ability to carry out a Christian life. But there's two types of sin that were being taught in the church that are still taught to this day. Venial sin and mortal sin. Venial sin is a sin that you commit that doesn't necessarily condemn you. But if you die in a venial sin state, you go to purgatory to suffer satispasio, meaning temporary judgment, to kind of cleanse off the venial sin so you can stand before the presence of God. If an individual commits a mortal sin, the Catholic Church teaches you go straight to hell. Unless you get back to the sacrament of penance and you get to the sacrament of the Eucharist, which is um, what they do on their occasions is the Eucharist is the transubstantiation between the literal body and blood in Christ of the communion service. You take part in that, your mortal and venial sins are taken away, and you're cleansed again. But the scary thing about this is if you go to bed at night and you lay down your head on your pillow and you commit a mortal sin and you don't have a chance to get to church again until two days, how do you wear off that mortal and venial sin? So these were the things, if you read the Protestant Reformation, that the Protestants were protesting against. And what we asked, you know, in Freedom this morning is to take a look at these things seriously, using your private judgment. Is it by grace alone, through faith alone, in the word of God alone? Or does salvation come by another authority, such as the Roman church, or as a pastor, or a teacher, or a college professor? Where are we going to place our private judgment? So the Protestant position has always been what's known as sola scriptura. The basis of God's word alone is the authority. That is God speaking to us. What ended up happening to the Catholic Church they have the Word of God, but then they also have tradition. And the Word of God and the tradition combined, interpreted by the magisterium or by the Roman pontiff and the bishops, is where they get their doctrines of venial sin, mortal sin, the sacraments, um, the Eucharist, and all of those types of things. So a person stands back, you read the Protestant Reformation, you read the Bible, you read the Catholic Catechism, 
An individual has to make their choice as to where they're going to place their private judgment. Is it in the Word of God alone, by faith in Christ alone, as the Protestant Reformation brought about? Or was it in 1546, the counter to the Reformation, which was the Council of Trent, where the Catholics laid out their doctrine? So we're Protestant here for these reasons, and it's for this reason this morning that we see the simplicity of the gospel message is by faith in Christ's finished work alone, apart from any ability of us trying to save ourselves. Keeping at that point, keeping it simple, that's what we see here in Galatians. So next week we will be in um, Ephesians. So um, let's close, close in a word of prayer. Lord, we, just, we thank you that salvation, we can't, we can't do it. Um, if it were up to my ability, Lord, I would have been long gone. And we just thank you for the saving grace that you have given us. You know, this relationship that we have with you that you have given us, it's all a gift. And we pray that we take this gift and we turn around and every moment of our lives we live it out in gratitude for what you have redeemed us from and what you have in store for us. Lord, this is so mind-blowing and it's so revolutionary and it's so life-changing. And if we've come to church for any period of time, it can start sounding monotonous. It can, oh yeah, grace by faith. We pray that doesn't happen. We pray that every time we hear this message that's preached in Galatians, that we just rejoice. We thank you for all of these things. We want to lift up our heart and our concerns to you and all of our requests to you. And we just pray we go, just go before us this week, Lord, and just help us be a light to a dying world, Lord, that is lost. Lord, we lift this up in your son's name. Amen.